Hello there, and John 17 is where we will be reading together. John 17, one of the prayers of Jesus, one of the great prayers of Jesus. John 17, just the first few verses, and I encourage you to be glancing at this passage as we make our way through the lesson. Okay. This is one of Jesus' uh, longest prayers, probably the longest recorded prayer uh, that we have in our, in our Bibles. We know that Jesus often prayed. We know he may have prayed longer than this. You know, Luke 6 and verse 12 says that Jesus prayed all night one time, so probably a lot more words to that prayer than this one. But here's one of the longest recorded prayers of Jesus. Our Lord is making his way. He's just been, he's just been with the disciples, eating the Passover, and also at that Passover, he begins to talk about the kingdom and the Lord's Supper that will be coming in that kingdom, uh, which is to come very shortly. And so they've left that situation. Judas has gone out to do his uh, dirty work, and they're making their way from, from Jerusalem and eating the Passover over to uh, a place called Garden of Gethsemane. If you glance over in your Bible to John 18 and verse 1, you'll see they're about to enter the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will utter another prayer of agony, but we have this one right here in between that Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane, this prayer in John 17 that Jesus utters. You know, I was thinking, uh, how can you know that God is real? There's a lot of ways to go and find out. Is God real? How can we make him real uh, to us? You know, we could use logic, we could use philosophy, and we could say, well, this universe uh, definitely had a beginning, and so there had to be a beginner. You know, this universe definitely has design uh, to it, so there has to be a designer. You know, we can look within ourselves and see the complexity that is there. We are both flesh, but we're also spirit. We'd say well, there has to be a designer behind our very uh, existence. But what I like to do is look at Jesus. The best way to know that God is real is to look into the words of our Lord and especially this prayer here in John 17. So for our uh, consideration we want to look here at the hour of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the gift of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and then the home of Jesus. That's, that's how we're going to proceed uh, this morning. Just the first few verses of John 17. First, let's begin as Jesus prays to his Father. Notice the hour of Jesus. As he prays here in John 17, verse 1, he looks to his Father, he lifts up his eyes, and he says, Father, the hour has come. We know what that means. The hour of his death. The whole history of the world has been coming down to this very point, this very hour of Jesus suffering for our sins and dying for our sins, eventually being resurrected and ascended up on high. But this is that hour, and not only has the world been headed toward this point, but Jesus has talked about it quite a bit. John 2, verse 4, if you just want to list some verses, John 2 and verse 4, and, and John 8 and verse 20, and John 13, verse 1, and John 12, uh, 23, and John 12, uh, 27 and 28, Jesus had been talking about this hour, this hour. John 13, verse 1, 
notice as he begins to eat the supper with his disciples. disciples. The comment is made that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world he, and go back to the Father. Jesus knew that hour was upon him. As I said, in a sense, the whole world has been moving in this direction. We can go way back to the prophets like Isaiah 53 and we can read how that someone was going to be coming who would be bruised for our iniquities and wounded for our transgressions and that person was Jesus and way back in Isaiah's time, hundreds of years before uh, Jesus, this was prophesied, now that hour has come. Jesus seems very determined, doesn't he? Very confident that this hour has come and he is going to fulfill what needs to be done in this hour. If you glance over to John 18, I forget what verse it is, but when they come to arrest Jesus there in the first 10 verses of John 18, they come and, and they said, one of the soldiers said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus steps forward and says, I'm he, right here I am. See, Jesus is ready, he is prepared to die for the Father and for mankind. But in another sense, Jesus is very troubled here. He's very troubled. And that's not just me saying this. Glance back to John 12 and looking down to verse 27, Jesus says this. He says, my soul is very troubled. And he says sort of to himself or he wants the disciples to hear it. He says, my soul is very troubled. What shall I say? Shall I say to the Father, Father, save me from this hour? No, he says, but for this hour I have come. For this very purpose I have come. But notice that this is not just, not just really easy for Jesus to walk through. Jesus will be struggling because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is human. He became flesh. He will struggle a little bit in this, quite a bit in this, in order to suffer for our sins, but there is a struggle uh, to him. The hour of Jesus, the hour of Jesus. Jesus shows us here, before we leave this idea, he shows us how to deal with stress because he knows what's coming. I think it's particularly difficult for Jesus and this is a, this is a way in which Jesus experiences things that we don't. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. He knew down to the details, the suffering that was ahead. He knew exactly how it would all take place with the Jewish leaders and then the Roman leaders. He knew the crucifixion. That, he knew every little detail that was coming. And so that would make it very difficult for him. No wonder he said, my soul is troubled. But yet he's going to suffer for us. But notice he shows us how to handle distress because he's taking all of this to the Father in prayer. Not only here in John 17, but later in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to be praying again. Jesus prayed all the time, and he teaches us to pray all the time. In fact, in Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus taught his disciples that they ought always to pray and never to faint. But he's also teaching us here that when times of difficulty, when times of trouble, when times of struggle are upon us, we need to especially learn to pray then. Glance back, if you will, to Psalm 18, verses 4 through 6. Psalm 18, 4 through 6. This is a prayer of David, but it almost seems like Jesus is following in this very path of the prayer of David in those days. 
But in Psalm 18, verse 4, David is running from his enemies and he says that the cords of death are just all around me. The cords of death are just all around me. The cords of destruction are just all around me. But notice what David says in Psalm 18, verse 6. He says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried out for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. And in a lot of ways, this is what Jesus is doing here. Okay. In his distress, he is calling out to the Father. And he's teaching us uh, that we can do the same. So, first of all here, see in this prayer the hour of Jesus. Appreciate so much that first song that was sung before Bible class. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. The more we come to know about Jesus, the easier it is to trust in our Lord. In the second place this morning, notice not only the hour of Jesus, but notice the glory of Jesus. This is how he prays in John 17, verses 2 and 3, or actually verses 1, 2, and 3. He talks about the glory. He says it in kind of an unusual way. He says, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So what's, what's Jesus saying here? Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. When is it that Jesus would be officially glorified and be in that official exalted state? Well, just as soon as he suffers for sin, just as soon as he's crucified, just as soon as he's buried and in the tomb for three days and three nights, and, and just as soon as he's resurrected from the dead, and just as soon as he walks around on the earth after his resurrection for 40 days, and then he's ascended up on high and at the right hand of God, it is at that time that he will be exalted, that he will be glorified. In Luke 24, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, Luke 24, 26, he says to some of his disciples, he says, uh, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and then to enter into his glory? You see, Jesus is headed to the right hand of God. So that's why he's saying to the Father, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. How is the Father honored? Okay. The main way that the Father is honored is when, when lost souls are recovered and brought back to Him. And once Jesus gets to the right hand of God, that will enable many, many people, and it's still happening today, once Jesus get, got to the right hand of the Father, then that set up the whole gospel system and the system of the New Testament church, and many souls have been saved, were saved in that day, are still being uh, saved. You see, Jesus says in John 15, 7 and 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. You see, when a lost soul comes to the Lord, this is what honors the Father. And once Jesus gets to that right hand, then He's going to be able to uh, enable the world to find their way uh, back home. In Hebrews 2, verse 10 and this is a fabulous little passage here. Hebrews 2, verse 10. It says of Jesus that because he suffered for sins, he brought many sons to glory. And I believe this fits in right here. Jesus being at the right hand of God, going through what he needed to go through to get there, then that enabled many people to become sons. 
to the glory of God. You see that? And if we want to follow suit, if we want to follow the ways of Jesus, then the way for us to bring honor to God is to assist the Lord, to assist in this process of bringing lost souls uh, back to God. Matthew 5 and, and 16 says, Let your light so shine uh, before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father uh, who is in heaven. Okay. So we see here as Jesus is praying, He discusses with the Father the glory, the glory, the glory of Himself and the glory of the Father. One other passage I want to no notice with you before we move to our next point. John 1.14 is familiar to us, but let's keep reading it. Sometimes I'm bad about just throwing out a, a snippet of a verse here and there. But notice the first part of the verse is familiar, John 1.14. The Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And keep reading. And we beheld His glory, even the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. Okay. And the more that we are into the grace and the truth of Jesus, which goes together, then the more we're able to make our light, let our light shine, and the more we'll be able to bring lost souls, recover those lost souls for the Father. You see what I mean? If you want to just know God, you want to really know God, see, you want Him to become real to you and not just some figure up above, then you've got to look through the eyes of Jesus. He is my everything. He is my everything. So we see here in John uh, 17, we see the hour of Jesus and we see the glory of Jesus. Now, in the third place, and this is huge, this is huge. In the third place, we see the gift of Jesus. The gift of Jesus. As Jesus is praying here, he says, verse 2, I think it is. He says, Father, you have given me authority all flesh so that I can give out eternal life. You see that? You've given me authority of all, over all flesh so that I can give. So that they can have. They, meaning the disciples and everybody else that uh, is living, that they can have eternal life. We ask the question here, what is eternal life? What is eternal life? We need to understand, and this is kind of a review for us, but you understand this. Eternal life is not just continuing to, continuing to exist. It's not just living eternally. It's not just making it beyond the death of the body. Okay? It's not just continuing to live after the eventual destruction of the entire universe, which will one day take place when the Lord comes again. It's not just continuing to live. Okay? That's not eternal life okay? because just continuing to live after the death of the body and after the eventual destruction of the world that's an experience everybody's going to have whether they respect God or not see John 5 28 and 29 you remember Jesus said marvel not at this the time is coming when all who are in the tombs shall hear my voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto a resurrection of life but they that have done evil unto a resurrection of condemnation so just continuing to live is something everybody's going to experience. And so that's not really what Jesus means here by eternal life. Okay? Let me quickly tell you what eternal life is. 
Eternal life is eternal communion with God. Eternal life is an eternal walk with God that begins right now, you see. It's an eternal relationship with the Lord that begins right now. When we turn away from sin, we make the good confession, we're baptized into Christ, we begin that eternal walk with God that will continue as we are faithful. It will continue into the next life, into eternity, you see. But Jesus expands our definition of, of eternal life. Notice what he says here in verse 3 of John 17. He says, this is eternal life. Don't you love it when the Bible is just straightforward with you like that? This is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and know Jesus Christ whom he has uh, sent. Now, a couple things we need to know about know. A couple things we need to know about knowing. In one sense, a person can know some things about God. Some things about God. But really not know Him. Okay. Paul makes reference to this in Romans 1, 20-22, when he talks about those early Gentiles who saw the evidence for God, and he says there, but they rejected Him. And he said they saw the evidence of God, rejected Him. And he, but he says it like this. He says, they knew God... But they glorified him not as God, and neither were thankful. But their foolish hearts were darkened, and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And so we can know some things about God. A person can know some things about God and really not know God in an intimate way. So there's the idea of knowing some things about God. But then what Jesus is talking about here is knowing God in that intimate way. There's the idea of knowing God and knowing His will and submitting to it, yielding yourself to it. John explains it for us in 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4. So make a reference there, surely in your Bible somewhere. 1 John 2, 3 and 4 clears this up really well. Okay. So John says there, Hereby do we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. If someone says, I know the Lord, and does not keep the commandments, then he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now that just clears it up for us right there. So in order to know God, we've got to know His will, and then be obedient to Him, and keep those commandments. As the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author, and here it is right here, underscore it, Hebrews 5, verse 9. He became the author of eternal salvation. That's what we're talking about here, eternal life. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all those who obey him. See. And so, let me ask you a question. Is it possible to know God and then not know God at the same time? It is. It is. You can know some things about God, but not really know him on the personal level, and that happens a lot. Some of you will know who I'm talking about. Some of you won't, but it's okay. But we had a member here uh, at Midway one time whose dad was an unbeliever and lived in Decatur, and, and I and several others would go and see him quite often. 
I took up the habit of walking with him at the mall just to try to get break through some of his unbelief. The man knew a lot about spiritual matters. He knew a lot about history. He could tell you about some names of the Old Testament and the background and the culture of the Old Testament more than most of us could. But he did not know God. It was very sad. He stayed in his he, he stayed in his unbelief, even though he knew a lot of facts about God. He knew some things associated with church, but he never come to know God. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And so, notice not only the hour of Jesus and the glory of Jesus, but notice the gift of Jesus. This gift is available to all of us if we will take the effort to know our Lord, know His will, follow Him, submit to Him. And then this, like I said a minute ago, this is huge. This, it doesn't get any bigger uh, than these words of our Lord here. And then in the time remaining, notice quickly in John 17, uh, four through eight. Notice the work of Jesus. Jesus says, I have finished the work that the Father has given me to do. This is also something that was on Jesus' mind time and again. For example, in John 4, uh, 34, he would say to his, his disciples, they, they were concerned about what Jesus had had to eat. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Again, in John 9, verse 4, Jesus said, We must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. And so Jesus is saying again here in John 17 in His prayer, Father, I have glorified You on earth. I have finished the work that You have given me uh, to do. Wouldn't that be great uh, as an inscription on someone's tombstone? Is those words there in verse 4? Uh, could that be said? of me? Can that be said of you in a personal way? Can, can it be said at the end of your life, I have glorified the Father and I have finished the work that He has given me uh, to do? Okay. Notice the work of Jesus and if you, if you glance on down uh, to verse 7 and 8, you see that a big part of Jesus' work was not only to come and die and to be resurrected and so forth, but also to qualify, to prepare His disciples to carry on the work. So he had given them uh, the word. The, notice in verse 8, the, the words that the Father had given to the Son, the Son had turned around and given them to his disciples. And then later, the Holy Spirit would come upon the apostles of Jesus to confirm all the things that had been said uh, by Jesus. And so Jesus, in his work, he gives his word in order that his, his ways can be, can be carried on. One thing that we get from this is that there is no ongoing personal preaching ministry of Jesus. Once, once Jesus ascended back upon high, then He does not make any more personal appearances to people today. Since that time of ascending back up on high, Jesus then made no more personal appearances to anyone in order to communicate to them. I know a lot of people talk in that way, but notice what he says here. I have taken the words of the Father and I have given them, all of them, uh, to the apostles. Okay. And so if we want to know about the Lord, then we go to his word that is written down 
for us. Notice not only the gift of Jesus and the work of Jesus, but notice finally the home of Jesus. John 17, 5, you notice it here uh, with me. He prays, he says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had uh, with you uh, in your own presence before uh, the foundation of the the world or before the world existed. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Have you thought about this lately? That that Jesus had all glory before he came to this earth. And he ascended back to the Father, and he still got all the glory that God could possibly have. We don't add anything to the character of Jesus. All the serving, all the sacrificing that we think we might do, all the giving that we think we might, we might do, we don't add one whit. The Lord is the Lord whether we serve him or not. He is glorious. He's always been glorious. He's still glorious. And the decision comes down to us. To us. There's no failure in the Lord. Not one little bit. The Lord is full of glory. He was, He is, and He still is full of glory. And notice how that He desires to go back home. In a smaller sense, of course, we can go there to be with Him. That's what He desires. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans 8, 18. He says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall come our way. That's, the, that's what the Son, that's what the Father wants. They want us to be there at the throne of God's glory. Jesus has paved the way. He prays to the Father, restore the glory that I had before the world existed with you. That has happened. Now he wants us to be there with him, at home with him. I just think, maybe I'm wrong. I just think these are powerful words, John 17, 1 through 8. With the limited time that we have in a session like this, I wanted us to see the hour, the glory, the gift, the work, and the home of Jesus. Don't you want to be there with him? Doesn't that drive your every thought? Is this our ultimate desire? Does everything else rotate around this one idea of being home with the Lord? In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, Paul says, whether I'm absent from the body or home in the body, whichever, I make it my aim to please the Lord. That is the goal that we have. We have this time reserved for the Lord's invitation. It is His invitation. And He extends it to us really every day, every hour of the day, especially though when we all come together. Are there some burdens? You know, the Lord was burdened as he was praying this prayer. Are there some burdens that, that the family of God can help you lift 
this morning. What about that gift of eternal life? Maybe you claimed it at some point in your life, but maybe you're not so sure about it now. 1 John 5, 13, John says, Brethren, he said, he said Beloved, I, I write these things unto you. Those of you who believe in the Lord, I write these things unto you that you may know that you have life eternal. Can you know that? We would love to assist you in gospel obedience this morning. Will you come? Let's all stand and sing this next great song, Rock of Ages. And let's sing. Let's think about our own hearts as we sing.